From the world to your ears, welcome to Yakin with Yassian, a podcast about music and its business, featuring your host, Dan Yassian. Hello, everyone. I'm here today with Ken Sidlow. I've known Ken Sidlow for many, many years through advertising, and Ken is uh, formally a senior copywriter, a supervisor of copyright material, and also a creative director at advertising agencies. That's how I met Ken. Through the years, Ken had us, as well as other music companies, doing music for advertising. So it's very fitting with musicology, advertising, music. Welcome. Thanks very much, Dan. It's thanks good to be here. For, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate this. Trying to give maybe some insight into how advertising works and how it works with music in general. You started in advertising. Why? How did you get there? Uh, it's an interesting story. I had an uncle who was very, very young. He was six years my senior, my dad's baby brother. He was in the advertising business. And one weekend, he was struggling with trying to put together a concept that, in point of fact, involved music. And he said, I'm trying to come up with some sort of idea for a pitch. We're trying to get a new piece of business. And uh, I had had a music background, played in bands, had studied at Interlochen and elsewhere. And so I tried to help him out. I ended up writing some lyrics, which begat a jingle, uh, which begat a session at the old Pioneer Recording oh my, Studios yeah. on sure. uh, on James uh, Cousins. James Cousins. And uh, I was kind of hooked. It was uh, it was fun. And my attitude was, you get paid for this? <laughs> this would be a good thing. I was kind of flailing about, uh, wondering what I was going to do with myself. I was in grad school at the time, and uh, he said, well, let me see if I can get you an interview or two, and why don't we put together a a book, that's what it was called, you had samples of your writing. And uh, I took the tape from that pioneer session and I took some mock ads and ultimately uh, got myself a job at a um, silly salary, but uh, it was a start. So that's how it began. Was that silly salary or that first job, was that Burton Sahigan advertising? No, no, the no, first job was that. at Y&R. Uh, and and I started at YNR. It's a large agency. I mean, you're there, this first budding person yeah, coming it, out right there. It, it really was remarkable, and I think the only reason that YNR was hiring kids for cheap was they had a division that did nothing but local, dealer, low-budget advertising, and it was a great way to learn your craft. Uh, way back then... Chrysler Plymouth was a big client at YNR, and uh, we had a a piece of music that had been developed by uh, a guy named Ed Labunsky. I don't know if you remember Ed, of course, sure. And uh, and a little pixieish blonde in a football jersey with a whatever year it was seventy three on on her jersey called Mean Mary Jean, and Mean Mary Jean was selling Plymouths all over America. I recall that. And uh, she was cute as hell, and I was young, and that was a good thing. Yeah, very impressionable. We're starting in music, but now you're turning it. You're, you're, you're getting into language. You're getting into communication with words. This is a different thing. You're communicating, yes, it's an expression, but how is that happening? 
creativity to me is a, not a switch, and this is the, the word switch, and this is the music switch, and this is the art switch. It's more a rheostat, and one flows into the other. I was doing a combination of lyric and copy and sales, but the notion was always you're not going to get anybody to do anything until a mind is peaked or a heartstring is plucked. And uh, that's what music does. And that's what words can do. Uh, takes a while to learn how to do that or do it well. Um, but that's the same as developing a musical talent, it seems to me. All right. So you, you start at Y&R. And then I know because of my experience with you that you um, meet a young lady at the time <laughs> and her name is Denise Abood and but she becomes a Sidlow. She did indeed. She How became... does that happen? <laughs> well I think that happens the same as it happens in any case. Uh, in our case it was uh, a little unusual. Denise was a bit older than I was. Uh, she had been in the business a bit longer than I was. Uh, suffice it to say uh we worked together for a number of years. We kept our relationship very quiet. Most people did not know we were seeing one another. Because? Because we thought it would impact assignments, that the agency would be reluctant to assign her to produce something that I had written if they knew we had a personal relationship. So we kept it to ourselves until we were ready to tell the world that we were going to get married. And in uh, 19... 78, an Arab married a Jew, and the, and the world kept revolving. It <laughs> didn't seem stopped. to be a, a problem. We were a very mixed marriage. She was a Lebanese Catholic, and, um, and uh, people used to say, well, he's Jewish, she's Catholic. How do you make that work? And I said, it's terrific. I teach her guilt. She teaches me shame. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, coincidentally, I got to know your wife, Denise, who turned out to be my mentor in my business of, mu of making music for advertising. So that was quite, quite a remarkable thing for me. Uh, I will never forget when I first walked into her office and introduced myself and said what I do, that she said, well, play me some samples. And I did. And she said, Dan, I'm sorry, but you're not ready yet. And I was, you know, as an artist, you're frankly a little bit of a, appalled by this, right? So no, no your your initial reaction is, what the hell do you know? Exactly. So what she did is remarkable. What she did was she instructed me on where to go, how to do it, and she gave me tapes to take home. And I went back and forth with her for over six or seven months as she taught me. And nobody would take that kind of time with you, you know? I mean, everybody's busy doing what they do. How are they, how are they going to make time for you? So some way or another, we hit it off. Going further than that now, beyond Y&R, where you met Denise, then you end up where? I went from Y&R to uh, Burton Advertising um, uh, for two reasons. There was a new creative director at Y&R, and we chemically did not work well together. We had met in New York on other projects. Philosophically, we were in very different places. As soon as he came to Detroit, I knew that my days were numbered. Uh, Burton was an opportunity to go from writing 
to getting some supervisory experience because you're going from a great big agency to a regional agency, quite a bit smaller, lower budgets. But it was an opportunity for me for the first time to to deal with others in a in a in a way that I hope would nurture them in the way that uh, Denise nurtured you. While there at Burton, you had uh, brought me into the fray of doing music for the agency and uh, with you, you know, interceding, of course. That was for the Red Wings. We had uh, just shortly before that won the Little Caesars account and Mike Illich became our client. He was a delightful guy to work with. He was a, a straight shooter. We enjoyed that relationship a lot. At that time, Mike desperately wanted to buy the Detroit Tigers. It had to be heartbreaking for him not only to lose the Detroit Tigers, but to lose the Detroit Tigers to Tom Monahan, right, his right. rival in the in the pizza business. I think just to try to heal his broken heart, he bought the Red Wings on the rebound. He really didn't know hockey. He had been a minor league baseball player in the Tigers organization, so that's really where his heart was. And uh, when he bought the Red Wings, he was trying to figure out how to be an owner. And uh, at the time, you may remember, nobody was going to the hockey games. Uh, Red Wings had been horrible for years. Well, that that brings me to a point. I recall doing the, the music, Red Wings, My Red Wings. We had Larry Santos sing it. Sing it. That's right. And uh, I told my wife, Kathy, I said, you know, it would be a wonderful thing if we went down to the arena because then we could hear this song actually being played within the arena. Red Wings, my Red Wings. Come on, come on, come on, let's fly. And it was a moving experience except for the fact that when the chorus came in, Red Wings, my Red Wings, everybody in the crowd was singing Red Wings, my, my dead, dead wings. things. My dead wings. Yeah. So... It was not fun. No, it was not. It took a. It was a long pull to bring that team back, and I applaud them for doing it. But uh, the whole idea behind the song was just to try to light a fire under hockey fans again because it had become so moribund. Right. So, and that again takes you to what advertising is supposed to do, which is to arouse some emotion within the clients or within the spectators or within the consumer or whatever. And that was your job. You had to do that via the language, the expression of that. And uh, how difficult would that be? In a case like that, it wouldn't be horribly difficult because you've got a really strong foundation from which to build. You know these people love hockey. Right. Uh, with other products, you don't necessarily know that somebody is predisposed to whatever you're selling. But with the Red Wings, we knew you sell to those most likely to buy. Mm -hmm. If somebody has bought European luxury vehicles for decades, it's a very hard sell to sell them a Lincoln or a Cadillac. Right. So you concentrate on those who want to move up from a Ford or a Buick. And speaking of Cadillac, you moved on from Burton Advertising over to Darcy, where you had the Cadillac account. We did, and ultimately I became creative director on Cadillac for a time. My time at Darcy was 15 years of, frankly, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of fun for a number of reasons. Uh, we were at the 
tail end of uh, the Mad Men era. You know, Ken, yeah, but can you explain a little bit about that, the Mad Men era, how that was different? What We're talking about the 50s, 60s. The 60s. Yeah. Uh, uh, how, how's that? I got in in the 70s, uh, 70s and 80s. It was not quite as Mad Men as it had been. But generally, we were still compensated by uh, 15% of media expenditures. That's a different world today. Oh, oh, of course. Um, It was like going to the travel agent to book your travel. You you know, you paid the same, whether you paid Jones Travel or you paid uh, Delta Airlines. Right. But Jones Travel got what amounted to commission from Delta Airlines if you went through them. Mm Mm-hmm. It was the same thing. We would place media and get our 15%, which, frankly, made us a good bit of money. Of course. Um, So expense accounts were not scrutinized in the way they would be today. We were uh, renting exotic cars when we'd go out to shoots in, in Los Angeles. We were staying at very fine places. We were eating at very fine restaurants. It was... A very freewheeling sort of experience for a good while. Now, at that point, my wife and I were at two different agencies. She was at Campbell Ewald selling Chevrolets mm-hmm. while I was at Darcy selling Cadillacs. And if we found ourselves in the same city at the same time, New York, for example, uh, Campbell Ewald Detroit and uh, Darcy Detroit would split a hotel bill and uh, we would stay yet even fancier. Because our agencies were saving money, even getting us the suite. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Yakking with Yesium. Visit danyesium.com and sign up for the newsletter to receive all the latest content, including vlogs, podcasts, and all things related to Dan's feature work and Armenian trilogy. Now back to the conversation. We did some music over there at uh, Darcy for you as well. You did indeed. You did uh, uh, tracks for FTD, as I recall. And we did demos for Cadillac. Can you explain the demo process to the audience? There were a number of ways that was done. Usually we got what amounted to seed money. Uh, Enough money so that Yesin Music and its competitors could at least cover some costs while they competed for a campaign. And uh, so someone like Denise, someone like me, would listen to demo reels and pick out three, four, maybe five music houses. But each house came up with a number of tracks. Yes, right? they did. And, and that was purely up to them. Right. If you wanted to roll the dice on one track that you thought was, that's the best we're going to do, And let's put all of our eggs into that basket. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, music houses would do that. More often, you would get three or four. You'd have numerous composers at one music house. And, you know, let's play Joe's track. Let's play Susie's track. And let's play Andy's track for them and and, uh, give them a a variety to pick from. Right. Dow Chemical. The line. You came up with this line? Dow Chemical. Lets you do great things, right? Yeah, that was um, that was the line. Actually, one of our art directors uttered it, and uh, then it became up to me to, all right, what do we do with it? And you can make a difference in what tomorrow brings. Cause down lets you do great things. 
was a, it was an uncomfortable assignment at first because if you're my age and you hear Dow Chemical, the first thing that comes to mind is chemical defoliants in Vietnam. Mm. And you say, my God, do I really want to be a part of that? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I was the guy who railed against President Nixon when he started bombing Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Do I really want to do this for these people? Mm -hmm. And, of course, I was young and dumb, and you learn. Um, people were able to teach me. You know, it's interesting that the people you're talking about relative to Agent Orange are also the people who cured rubella. Right. And you learn that things are not always black or white, mm -hmm. but could be any number of shades of gray. And I said, okay, if there is a predisposition to not like these people, let's make this as heartstrings as it possibly can be. And so you're showing things, you're showing images with this commercial. What were the images? We were showing young people about to graduate from college, uh, young people who wanted to do great things for the world, idealistic kids. And it did two things. Uh, we, we would depict uh, seniors in college who were about to uh, go off and, and conquer the world. And they really wanted to do important things. So one of them, you know, was going to take his education and grow more and better grain to feed more people. I see. One of them was going to take his pre-med background and turn it into medic medicines that could help high-risk heart patients. Mm -hmm. And it did a couple of things. One, hopefully it softened the image of the company. And we had some research that indicated that it did. but Because more, the company had a problem with those kinds of other things that you were talking about? Exactly. It sensed that it did. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that that campaign did, uh, there was Darcy in St. Louis, which was mostly known for its Anheuser-Busch work, right. also had Purina. And they ran a campaign. It was very smart. They ran a campaign that they entitled... Attention veterinarians. And you'd see a commercial start, and you would hear attention veterinarians. Now, what would that do? That would make every dog owner on uh, watching that television. Absolutely. Turn to the television and say, what, what are they going to talk about that's going to help my fluffy? A genius. And so, that lets you do great things, did the same sort of thing, we thought. If it looked like we were talking to college seniors, well, that's a silly way to advertise to college seniors. Right. Hey, you could take one twentieth of the money and put it into college newspapers if you're really about recruiting kids to come to work. But if it looked like a recruiting thing for idealistic young people and other people turned and watched it, then they might be impacted in a positive way about about that company. Also reminds me of the time that we did some music again for Darcy for FTD uh, that had featured the actor Merlin Olson. Why Merlin Olson? Do you have any idea about that? Um, he was on Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, your good friend that we've also lost, uh, yeah, uh, Ray. Ray Blackwell, right. uh, zigged when 
people expected people to zag. He was that kind of guy. He was, sorry, what is the antithesis of flowers? Well, the antithesis of flowers is a defensive lineman who, you know, eats quarterbacks for lunch. Uh, <laughs> and, and he said, we can soften this guy and make flowers universal. And uh, it was, a, and that's the trick, isn't yeah, it? I mean, it, it really just, is. It works so well. I if mean, it's it? if it's expected, it doesn't impact. Right. If it's unexpected, you've got a much greater chance. And there are lots of ways to do that. Mnemonic devices. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of Steve Carman's famous Budweiser song in the '60s, it started with two timpani hits. Boom, boom. Here yeah. comes the mm-hmm. king, here comes da, right. Da, 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 and da, as soon da, as you yeah. heard, boom, boom. Yeah, you knew it was there. You knew what was coming. Yeah. I did a thing called uh, The Only Way to Travel is Cadillac Style. It started with a bass guitar going, the only way to travel. And so you looked for whatever you could use to immediately grab folks. And it's got to be more important today than it was back then because... Then uh, you didn't have something that said uh, you can skip ad in five seconds <laughs> the way we do today. <laughs> what we have today, yeah. yeah. It was also crazy time. I mean, we did, we did some, some uh, in 1979, Mr. Iacocca took over Chrysler Corporation. Mm-hmm. And we had been a Chrysler agency. We at YNR had been a Chrysler agency forever. And at that point, he was trying to save a corporation, and he fired us. He fired us in favor of an ad man in New York that he had had a relationship with for many, many years, a man named Leo Arthur Kelmanson. And he basically told us, look, you guys could probably do this job, but I need to be comfortable because I got to climb a mountain to get this company back, back out of- Back to where it should be. And- our dear friend Ron Castori and I oh, were gosh, yeah. were dispatched to uh, California to shoot the last commercial for Chrysler Corporation that YNR was going to do. I need not tell you there were some overages involved <laughs> in that particular trip because we didn't much care about the budget. Right. Uh, we were fired, but we immediately decided to go after the piece of business that Leo Arthur Kelmanson had given up, mm-hmm. Lincoln Mercury Division. Wow. While we were in California, I got a phone call, and we were told to go to a place way out in the hinterlands called the Cougar Hill Ranch because they wanted us to have our picture taken with a cougar. And I, at first, I said, you want us to have a picture taken with a car? No, schmuck, the cat. <laughs> so we drove out to the middle of nowhere, and and sure enough, they, they you know first took a picture with a baby cougar so that we would have cougar smell on us, and then we uh, took our picture with Chauncey, who was the original cougar, who at this point in his life would gum you to death. Oh my! And then finally, they brought in the hero cougar, who was literally as hard as the table before you and I today, and. Ronnie and I put our arms around this cat, and you held a chain right under its chin, and you said a quiet prayer, and they banged off pictures of you and this cougar. Now, we finished that, and we had to get the pictures back to Detroit for the pitch to Lincoln Mercury. Sure. We were driving much too fast in a rented Alfa Romeo down the freeway to get back and and send the pictures. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And Ronnie, at that point, wondered how fast an Alfa Romeo would go. Oh, boy. And I said, I don't know how fast an Alfa Romeo will go. And he said, well, let's find out. And he put his foot in it. And I was looking over at the speedometer, uh, and I saw 100, 105, 110. (laughs) At 114, Ronnie noticed the chips in the rearview mirror, the California Highway Patrol behind us. Oh, boy. And his first statement to me was, do you think I can outrun him? Oh, my gosh. And I said, Ronnie, uh, he's got friends and a radio. (laughs) And, yeah, I guess you're right. His second question to me was, do you think I can expense this? And I said, no, I I don't. Well, we pulled off, and the cop came, and the cop was... He was almost in tears because he wasn't going to catch us. He was terribly <laughs> upset. And Ronnie gave him some kind of BS about, uh, here's my cameraman's card, and we've got to get this film. We were shooting film at the Cougar Hill Ranch, and it's got to get on an airplane. And, and, and the cop said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And Ronnie looked at him and said, Walter's going to be really angry. <laughs> and, who's, who's Walter? Walter? Walter Cronkite, have you ever heard of him? Oh, my God. Uh, Ronnie is trying to sell this line of, well, the guy took some pity on us and wrote us up for something like 85 and a 55 or something. Wow. And we found our way back. But those are the kinds of adventures mm-hmm. that uh, you could have in those days yeah. of advertising that I doubt it's you funny could that get away we, with. And then we, as I tell a lot of people, sometimes you you really lean on those adventures for memory's sake more than you do the actual the workings of what you were up to doing professionally, no right? Yeah, absolutely. It was the relationships you had with the folks you worked with. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, the war stories just don't end. Any other anecdotal things that you recall? i tell you, one that predates me that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. Um, in the old days before a car came out in the fall, they would take it to a very, very sparsely populated area and do what was called go-rounds shoot the car from various angles while it was running. What's the best view of this car? A colleague worked at J. Walter Thompson. This was in the middle 60s. -hmm. And uh, they were going to go out to um, the middle of nowhere in Arizona and do go-rounds on the upcoming 1965 Ford Galaxy. Now, okay. If you're a Detroit guy and a car guy, you know that from 1964 to 1965, it was a huge change in the Ford Galaxy. It went from a very round kind of car to a very knife-edged square Mm -hmm. kind of car. Mm -hmm. It was sent out there with no badging. Nobody knew what it was. And it was a film crew and an agency producer and a phalanx of 20 account executives uh, stumbling over each other, determining which <laughs> of them was more important than the next. Right. And uh, they're driving around the hinterlands shooting this car. Well, eventually, everybody's car, rental cars as well as the hero car, had to be gassed up. Of course. So they went into this little tiny town where there's a young kid uh, working at the gas station, and uh, the kid is looking at the hero car, And he turns to one of the account guys and he says, what is that? (laughs) And the account guy says, well, I I can't tell you, young man, but uh, 
It's uh, comes from one of the big three, and it'll be one of the new cars next year. We well, I'm going to figure this son of a bitch out. <laughs> and he's looking at it, and he's looking at it, and he's trying to figure it out. And he goes to another account guy. What is that? And same story. I, I'm not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, the client is there, of course. People from Ford are there. And uh, the kid is filling car after filling car, you know, rent a car and so forth. And he keeps staring at it. And finally... He looks up and he says, I know what it is. That's a 1965 Pontiac and they fucked it up. (laughs) (laughs) And all the Ford Motor Car Company was just crestfallen. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. Yeah, it was good times. Yeah. So now, Ken Sidlow, retired. I know you've been up to some uh, other kinds of things. True. Can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, Denise, uh, my wife passed away about five and a half years ago. And, and for the last three years of her life, uh, my job was trying to help her. I had no interest in going back to what I had done. I had been freelancing for a good number of years and I just, I was done. Took about eight months, 10 months after I lost Denise to start thinking about, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. So I said, what do you love? What would be fun? Not about making a living, but about something to do. I've always loved American history. Mm -hmm. And I said, what if I developed some talks that I could give to people, people in independent living, adult learning programs, people who still had their marbles and still wanted to be challenged and still wanted to learn something, could I do that? I always enjoyed standing up in front of clients and presenting. This is another way to present, except it would be stuff that I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. So I developed a talk called Stuff You Don't Know About the Presidents of the United States. And I did a lot of research on it and found a lot of wonderful stories about stuff you don't know about the presidents of the United States. Give me one thing that I wouldn't know about the presidents. Well, uh, one little segment of that is uh, presidents of the United States getting in trouble as kids. Mm. We we think of them as portraits, not people. Right. Well, there was the kid who became president who blew up a toilet with a cherry bomb in his high school. (laughs) His name was John Kennedy. There was the kid who stole the Christmas wreath off the front door of the Midtown Manhattan Hotel just as a prank. That kid was named George W. Bush. Uh. There was the kid who three times in one day was arrested overseas. That was a kid who was riding his bicycle in Germany with his tutor, teaching him while his family was traveling in Europe. Okay. He and his tutor were on their bicycles. They went off into the countryside, and they first got arrested for rolling off the road into a farmer's field and stealing cherries. Mm. He talked his way out of that one. Later the same day, he, he and his tutor rode their bicycles into the train station in Strasbourg in Alsace-Lorraine. You're supposed to leave your, your bicycle outside. Right. Um, so he was arrested for that. He talked his way out of that one as well. Later that day, a farmer's goose had stuck its neck through the spokes of the tutor's bicycle. Oh, boy. And when they took off to leave, of course, the goose was cooked. Guillotined, guillotined <laughs> yeah, right. by the by the spikes of the. Yeah. 
And uh, uh, he could not talk his way out of that one. That one, they had to pay five marks to the farmer whose goose it had been. And uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for the rest of his life, said that goose was trying to commit suicide. (laughs) (laughs) But those are the kinds of stories that people just enjoy. I think it's great stuff. It it gives a human aspect to what we think is, you know, untouchable. Yeah. uh, These guys really were much more like you and I than people realize. And so I do this talk that's not political. I refuse to do politics. Uh, And uh, we talk about uh, character studies and we talk about various interesting things that happen. One of them, by the way, got a speeding ticket in in Washington, D.C. Who was? On a horse. Really? U.S. Grant was speeding on his horse. You're kidding. Through, uh, There's a speed limit for horses there, going through? There was. There were lots of accidents happening, and there was a cop looking for speeders, and he grabbed the bridle of the horse as the president was going by and stopped him because he was going to hurt someone, and it was the president of the United States <laughs> who crazy. paid the $5 fine, and in the late 1860s, five bucks was a boatload oh, of money. yeah, I'm uh, sure. So, I, I mean, it's that kind of stuff I do. So you've done this already, have you? I've done that many times. Yeah, audiences both north and south. Uh, today I spend half the year here in Michigan and half the year down in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done it here. I've done it there many times. There's another talk that I did uh, called The White House and the Jews that talks strictly about how the presidents of the United States have interacted with the American Jewish community. A third one that you helped me with called A Conversation with Mr. Lincoln that's predicated on... I think it's great. The idea that what if you just heard someone say, uh, excuse me, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but can you tell me what's happened since April 1865? And you look over and it's, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And it's on you then to explain to Abe Lincoln what has happened since 18... So it's that kind of history lesson. But I'm sure that all of this stuff, after your professional career, had to be influenced by your career. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. I think my career taught me how to best relate to an audience when I was trying to sell concepts in front of clients. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes you found yourself in front of a room where there were 22 people who had the power to say no, but didn't have the power to say yes. Mm -hmm. And you had to keep the concept alive enough until their boss the one who could say yes, was in the room. Yeah. So it was uh, learn how to entertain, learn how to cajole, learn how to, uh, and obviously believe in what it is you've developed. Of course. Yeah. Listen, it's been such a pleasure. You've been so informative, and I don't know how anybody could not be interested to hear what you've got to say. I mean, you were total communicator and it's no wonder that you've been in this business all these years communicating with words and interpreting that by the way with music i mean you're part of all that whole thing as well as a drummer you've been a great drummer uh and we bought your drum set you did as a matter of fact we got that my drums live at yes in music that's true yeah uh thanks so much i had a lot of fun thanks ken sidlow thank you this has been Yakin' with Yessian. Thanks for tuning in. As always, visit danyessian.com for all the latest content. See you soon.